a lot of economists don't compare the reality of a free market with all its warts with the reality of a market in which you have intervention. Instead, they compare the reality of a free market with this hypothetical system with certain regulations in which everything works well and government knows everything and so on. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Essential Scholars podcast. I'm Rosemary Fike, and today we're going to be talking about the UCLA School of Economics. My guest is David R. Henderson. He is one of the co-authors of the Essential UCLA School of Economics. David is an emeritus professor of economics with the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. He's a research fellow with the Hoover Institution and a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. I know him best from his work editing the Concise Encyclopedia of Economics, which has been invaluable to me and my students. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. It's a pleasure to see you and speak with you. Thank you, Rosemary. Same, same for me. So one thing, you know, I learned a lot while reading this book, um, specifically, I didn't necessarily think of the UCLA school as being its own kind of unified school of thought. Yeah. Um, so what would we talk about as the central characteristics? What sets the UCLA school apart from the mainstream? Um, yeah. Well, I think what I'll do is a little narrower if that works. Yeah. What sets it aside from the Chicago school? Because people often regarded the UCLA school is being very similar, almost like a knockoff of the Chicago school. In fact, at times, people referred to UCLA as the farm team for the University <laughs> of Chicago. And when I arrived at UCLA in September 1972, I'd read some of Sam Peltzman's work already. And I, and I went to knock on his door to just do a little courtesy visit. And on his door was a bumper sticker that said, the University of Chicago at Los Angeles. <laughs> Uh, Sam was a Chicago graduate who worked under the under George Stigler, who later won the Nobel Prize in economics uh, for his microeconomics work. Anyway, so what sets it apart? I think a few things. One is the focus on the importance of property rights and the incentives that arise from property rights and how that drives behavior. And both Armin Elchin and Harold Demsetz, those are the two most important people in the UCLA school, hammered that home in various ways. So, so and, and Elchin was great. Elchin, in fact, did the article on property rights for my encyclopedia that you mentioned earlier. And so the idea was, the way I put it once, and I think we quoted this in the book, is Armin Elchin, if you want to kind of understand him in a sentence, it's, you show me the property rights and I'll show you the effects. In other words, once I understand the property rights, I can trace through what are the incentives those property rights give rise to. And then, you know, what are the effects of, of those incentives? So and really I, kind of thinking about the, the institutions, specifically those property rights, um, and do they just apply them to understanding markets or are they expanding the set of, of inquiry beyond traditional markets? Both uh, understanding markets and also expand, you know, going beyond traditional markets. So one example we give in the book, 
And it was one that I was not familiar with when we started writing the book. Um, a little background. I grew up in Canada and there was a show we used to watch once a week. It was kind of like CBS's 60 Minutes, although even more left wing on CBC. And it was titled This Hour Has Seven Days. And on that show, I remember my whole family was watching. I was like 13, 14, something like that. And it showed these people clubbing these baby seals to death. And it was just like the most horrible thing. And isn't this awful? And it was awful. And we thought it was awful. And that was the end of it as far as I knew. What, 55 years later, I find out more about it. And they, they, they discussed that specific case. And it was that there was a quota no more than 50,000 seals could be killed. And it wasn't like each person was handed a quota so they could figure out which ones am I going to kill. It's there's an overall number. So that's this tragedy of the commons, right? That, that, and, and boom, they start going out and just mad, you know, killing like crazy because I want to get this seal. So you don't get that seal. And uh, so that that's an example where they applied it beyond a standard narrow market thing. And while I'm making that point, I want to make one other point that we make in the book. Um, Harold Demseth wrote a, an article in the American Economic Review, the May 1967 issue titled Toward a Theory of Property Rights. Now, to, <laughs> there's not one equation in that article, and it is one of the most reprinted and read articles in economics. Isn't it weird that there's no way the American Economic Review would accept that today? Anyway, he wrote that, and I just did a little timeline and realized, wait a minute, this, is, this was done at least months and maybe a year or more before Garrett Hardin did his famous article in Science, The Tragedy of the Commons. Huh. So, so Harold Demsetz essentially came up with it before Garrett Hardin did. He got there first. He got there first. Wow. Um, so one of the things that you kind of just alluded to is a lot of the work in the UCLA school wasn't overly mathematical and overly formalized. Is that something that kind of set them apart from others as well? It does. It definitely sets them aside apart from the mainstream and even to some extent from the University of Chicago, which was a little more mathematically oriented at the time. But yeah, it definitely sets them apart. When I went there, I was there in residence from 72 to 1975. And I think I could honestly say it was the last major program that had, you know, kind of clout nationally without much math. And I went there as a math major who had done very well in math. So it wasn't that I was averse to it. It was just what I saw was how far you could get without math. And I think one of the things I learned from Armin Alchin was you can be completely rigorous in words. I think that that is such a great point. It's so unfortunate that a lot of economists kind of conflate rigor with, with math. Yep. Um, so you, this school of thought offers so many insights to a wide variety of topics. And as you said, property rights is kind of that of primary importance to yes. the UCLA school. So can we, in order to understand a little bit more about property rights, can we give like a brief definition? What are they? Is it just one thing? Is it 
you know, a package of things. Yeah. Um, they always talked about a kind of a bundle of rights so that the property rights varied with the item. So, so okay, so one obvious example, I have a gun. I have a right to shoot at a target. I don't have a right to shoot at you. So, so you know, those kinds of things. Um, and uh, and also even with, with property in the more normal sense of actual, you know, the, the place your house is on, uh, maybe you have a right to have it the color you want, but does that mean you have a right to build an abattoir when there are all these other houses next door? So there are certain limits and those limits are often defined contractually. I mean, one of the things they were good on was applying the kind of the coast insight, the Ronald coast insight about how externalities are reciprocal. So if I have something and I'm using it in a way that hurts you, well, you were there too. So who's, Whose fault is it? It kind of might depend on who was there first, you know, that kind of thing. And so, yeah. Um, and by the way, Demsetz would say at times that he wrote more on the Coase theorem than Ronald Coase did. <laughs> and, and that was true. And, uh, and yeah, he, that was a huge part of his work. So one of the things you talk about in chapter two, um, that we can use property rights to avoid conflict or, yeah. or they might be one means to resolve or avoid conflict. Can you right. talk a little bit about what that means and what that might look like? Yeah. And so I think one of the things I lead with, I, I, I looked at the book very quickly this morning <laughs> to prep. And I think I noticed this, that I, we, we lead with this example. Should I be able to take my shoes off in your house? And is that a public policy issue? Well, almost no one would say it's a public policy issue. And almost everyone would say that because it's your house, you have the right to set the rules. And right there, that avoids conflict. You decide how much you want my company. If you really want my company, you might be willing to let me take my shoes off in your house. <laughs> Otherwise, you won't. And one example we gave, give a real example um, Bob Barrow, who became a friend of mine when we were both teaching at University of Rochester, had been at Chicago, University of Chicago before then, and he highly valued conversations with Robert Lucas, who then went on to win the Nobel Prize in economics. Bob also had this, just this, just hatred of cigarette smoke. Mm -hmm. Robert Lucas was smoked cigarettes all the time. Uh, he was notoriously heavy smoker. Yeah. And so Barrow had a sign on his door at the University of Chicago, no smoking allowed, and then in fine print, except for Bob Lucas. And the idea was no one else brought enough to the table that was worth Barrow putting up with the smoke. But for Bob Lucas, it was worth it. And so that's this beautiful kind of gradient you have with property rights you allow this person to do this thing with because it's your property and that person you don't allow it and depends on your particular values and so we apply that also to things like smoking in restaurants who should be able to decide whether they're smoking in restaurants the restaurant owner the restaurant owner can can internalize all the costs and benefits if people really object to there being smoke and therefore won't show up the restaurant owner might say no smoking allowed. If 
there are a lot of heavy smokers who want to show up and they won't if they can't smoke. The restaurant owner might say smoking allowed. And of course, what happened before there were these laws, we got one in California in 1995, is typically restaurants allowed both. It wasn't perfect, but they allowed both the smoking section and non-smoking section. So again, it's a way where you don't have to have conflict because the property owner can make decisions and then people just accept, well, that's the rule when I, when I come into this building. And what's interesting about property rates is, is and this example highlights it, um, you have to bear the opportunity cost of restricting access to your property. Yeah. So you might be somebody who takes kind of a moral high ground or, and says, oh, I really hate cigarette smoking or whatever, but property rates really force you to reveal how much you don't like it. That's right? You might say, oh, there shouldn't be billionaires. I don't want to buy anything from Jeff Bezos. But the fact that most people use Amazon really does reveal how much we, we do appreciate what he does. Yeah, that's well put. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I benefit hugely from Jeff Bezos. Me too. I, uh, yeah. Um, so you also kind of in this example you talk about how property rates can use be used to solve bigger questions that we typically kind of put in the realm of public policy like what should be taught at schools and this is a really big debate going on in the US right now in terms of you know different laws have been passed in Florida and in Texas restricting what is allowed to be taught or how things are allowed to be taught in public schools. How can we resolve that kind of debate using property rights in lieu of resorting to the political process? Right. And so the problem does arise because of the political process. The problem does arise because you have government running schools. But if you had private schools, let's say I want my kid to be taught creationism. I wouldn't, but let's say I did. <laughs> then I could choose a school that did that. Let's say I wanted the school to teach evolution. I could choose a school to do that. Let's say I wanted the kid to kind of see both sides, which is probably what I would have liked. Uh, then I could choose a school that does that. So um, that so it's just, again, it's a nice resolution. People sort themselves and go to the kind of school that teaches what they want taught or what they want their kids to be taught. What's the role of the state in you know the, either the creation or enforcement or um, you know settling disputes that surround property rights issues? Well, um, that's a big issue. And so now if you ask me my thoughts, those might be a little different from Demsets and Elchin. Demsets and Elchin were not anarchists. They thought you needed a government. Um, what they didn't do, though, was explore very carefully how well government works at those things. I start with the kind of assumption you need a government also. But then when I look at government in practice, I really wonder. And so I don't have a good resolution. I don't have a good um, clear-cut conclusion about whether we should have government enforcing property rights or whether we could have other institutions. So you have people like David Friedman, who's a very, very carefully thinking anarchist, 
who points to Iceland where you had private property and private enforcement and so on. And so I'm, I'm myself, I, I got to say, I'm a little bit agnostic on that, mm-hmm. but Demsets and Elchin would definitely have said, yes, we need government enforcing property rights. But also one of the points that Demsets made in that 1967 article I referred to, toward a theory of property rights is often property rights come about naturally. So he pointed to Indian or First Nations or in Canada, I think they're known as First Nations tribes and so on, uh, where as the beaver uh, pelts became more and more valuable, it made sense to have lines demarcated. So, hey, in this area, our tribe gets to trap the beaver. In that area, your tribe gets to trap the beaver. And so the property rights came about naturally as the assets essentially became more valuable. Now, differences in the asset that we're trying to protect or to take ownership of, does that shape what property rights might look like or how important they might be? Yeah. And so I don't know if we talk about this in the book. I think we do. That if you looked at what people thought in 1850 about whether you could have uh, ranches in the West and have, you know, your cattle not encroach on my property, people were pretty skeptical about whether that could work. And then along came an invention just after the Civil War, barbed wire. (laughs) And that really made a huge difference and it made it possible to have property rights. It was because barbed wire was very cheap, you know, and you could enclose cattle and so on in a certain area. And so, and what that, what that illustrates more generally is that property rights can evolve and be, be formed as technology changes. So take an example a lot of us worry about. I live in Monterey. I sometimes go whale watching. Those whales are wonderful creatures. We worry about people, especially Japanese uh, um, fishermen and so on, uh, capturing them. Well, what if we could have little RFID chips in whales so you could kind of track your whale? You know, those kinds of things are conceivable now in a way they might not have been even 20 years ago. That's really, really interesting. We maybe can establish property rights over fish in the ocean. That's always seemed like the quintessential difficult property rights problem to solve. Yeah, yeah. One of the distinctions that you bring up in this chapter that Alchin makes in his work is that we might be entitled to the property itself but we're not entitled to a specific commercial value for that property. Can you talk a little bit about it? In the book, you give an example of of two restaurants, but I know that this is something that people kind of feel strongly about. Like they should, their house should always hold a particular value. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so the argument that, that Elchin makes is that's not true. You don't have a right to a specific value you have a right to your property, but because other people have a right to their property, take the restaurant example, they want to set up a competing restaurant. Um, their property rights mean they should be able to. 
And yes, that will that could well lower the value of your restaurant, and so be it. And so, you know, so that's kind of their exam their analysis. The term we often use in economics, I'm sure you know, Rosemary, is pecuniary externality. And so this is what's called a pecuniary externality, where we don't worry. It just means that you know some restaurant opens up. It hurts the asset value of the other restaurant, but there's an offsetting gain to consumers. And so we don't worry about it the way we worry about, say, pollution or something like that. So speaking of pollution, um, that leads me to my question about what are the limits to how we can use property to solve problems? So I know we could probably use property rights to, to solve some, some pollution issues to internalize right. some of those externalities, but what's the limit to that? Are there problems that might be too big, too widespread to effectively use property rights? I think so, and I'll give you an example. Um, you know, as you can kind of tell, I'm, a pretty I'm pretty critical of government regulation in general, and I was just thinking this morning, if someone accused me of being an ideologue and you don't like any regulation, can you name a regulation you like? And I thought, I sure can. Uh, I think it was great that they got rid of lead and gasoline because lead was actually affecting people's health. I mean, millions of people. And it's hard for me to conceive, given current technology, that could change, but given current technology, how you would have had all the gasoline makers and car owners and so on agree not to use lead. Mm. And so I think that was a case where some government regulation did something very good. Mm. So I want to change gears a little bit. Sure. Um, in this third chapter of the book, it starts, the chapter title is making this pretty strong claim how the profit motive reduces racial and other discrimination. Now that might be a claim that people who are skeptical of markets are gonna really be taken off guard by um, because the common criticism for from feminists or people who care about racial equality would be that markets are exploitative. Right. Um, so how does a market work to reduce inequality and to reduce discrimination? Reduce discrimination. That's Not necessarily right. inequality. It depends on what, what the source of the inequality is, but right. discrimination. Right, right. And I want to start with someone who wasn't at UCLA, and that is Gary Becker. Mm -hmm. Gary Becker at the University of Chicago did his dissertation in the mid-1950s. Uh, it turned into a book, The Economics of Discrimination. He made this very simple point that if you discriminate, say, on racial grounds, that was the particular one people worried about a lot in those days, in the 50s. If you discriminate on racial grounds, say, in hiring people, so you don't hire a black man who's at least as productive as a white man, you give up an opportunity to hire, to, to employ someone who could be productive. And maybe you can fill the job weeks later the white, with a white man, but then you missed out on a couple of weeks of of, of beneficial transactions and probably more like a couple of months. And so what that means is you bore a cost for discriminating. Now, does that mean you don't discriminate? No, it just means you bear a cost. But what it does also mean is that people for whom that cost is lower, maybe they don't resent black men as much, or maybe they even like them, they are going to do better. 
And so over time, the market share of the relatively non-discriminatory firms expands and the market share of the relatively discriminating firms contracts. And so there's this automatic penalty that a free market imposes on people who discriminate on racial grounds that have nothing to do with productivity. Now, that was the Becker insight. Where does Chicago come in? Well, there was an economist at University of Chicago named Ruben Kessel. Mm-hmm. And Ian Armin Elchin did an article kind of taking it the next step. They said, look, what if you have a monopoly, but the government tends to either explicitly regulate monopolies and the profits they can earn, or even just implicitly says, if you're a monopoly and you're doing too too well, we're going to take a look at you. They pointed out one of the implications is that discrimination becomes almost a free good. Because once I hit that profit constraint that the government has set and I can't go above it, well, why hire that person who can add a little profit to the firm when I can't legally or, or, or just inform, I can't inf- even just informally legally capture that profit. And so what Elchin and Kessel did was looked at Jewish MBA graduates versus non-Jewish and categorized industries into relatively regulated and relatively unregulated. And sure enough, they found that the relatively regulated industries hired Jews at a much, much lower rate than the relatively unregulated ones. And that is such a counterintuitive result to people who don't study economics that the, you know, steps that we deliberately take to maybe reduce the effects of discrimination might actually result in more discrimination. Right. Um, You give this great example of rent control in the book. Um, And this is one I use in my intro micro classes that just kind of blows my students' mind. Um, So you live in California. I'm sure you guys have some high prices for property and rent. Um, How does rent control increase the opportunity to discriminate? So, and this was Demsitz's uh, analysis. Uh, First of all, the argument, and then I want to give his evidence. The idea is that if you have rent control that's keeping the rent below what you would have charged, if it's not affecting it, it doesn't matter. But if it's keeping it below the rent you would have charged and typically does, or, or why bother having rent control, then uh, a landlord with somewhat, say, discriminatory, or like with racial tastes, let's say, who doesn't particularly like black people, it's a white landlord, before when there wasn't rent control, that place might have gone empty for a month while he's waiting for the right white tenant. And so he gives up a month of rent. With rent control, of course, he can rent the place right away and he can be pickier and choosier about who he rents to. And so he will tend to be more likely to rent to a white person. So the way Demsets put it is the cost of discriminating has fallen. And so what Demsets did, so most most major American cities during World War II, which went from 41 to 45, imposed rent control. And as the inflation rate and the economy was suppressed, money, government was printing money, but they weren't allowing prices to go up. What the free market rents would have been was higher and higher relative to the rent control rents. So 
that gap was getting bigger and bigger, which would mean, take Demsetz's thinking, that the, the um, cost of discriminating became lower and lower because it was just easier and easier to rent quickly. And so what he did was he had a student look at the ads for apartments in the Chicago Tribune. He was at the University of Chicago at the time. And the, what percent, and I wish he hadn't done this, but he wishes he hadn't, he wished he hadn't done this. He didn't break it down into what was called restricted, which was, that was completely legal to advertise. It meant we won't rent to black people. He didn't break it down into that versus furniture. When it said furniture, it meant you had to buy the furniture and they could inflate the price of the furniture to make up for the lost rent. He didn't break it down. He just looked at the two together and the percent that were either restricted or furniture went from around 10% at the start of the war to 20 to 40 to something like 90% the last year of rent control. Wow. And so that was just very striking evidence that... The, and then the, one of the other, and that ha considering one of the other effects of rent control that economists often point to is that the supply of rental housing also declines. Yes. So how difficult it must have been for people of color to find rental price rental housing when both the overall supply is falling and then the percentage of what's being offered is yeah. is being targeted towards um you know white people yeah no that's that would have been really that's, challenging that sucked and i want to just say when you say if you haven't studied economics or studied this thing you don't necessarily get that and that's true but i want to also say if you don't you might never study economics but if you pay a lot of attention you might notice certain things so an example i give just a kind of a trivial example that makes the point um i had a los angeles a, a, a a plastic Los Angeles Dodgers helmet that I was given at a 1978 baseball game in LA and I'm Mr. Cheap. And so when I went to see the San Francisco Giants play, and of course there's this huge rivalry between the two, I wore my Dodgers helmet. <laughs> and uh, so the guy, this guy's selling hot dogs and he's like 20, 30 feet away. And, um, and it's $5 for a hot dog. And I kind of signal to him and hold a $5 bill in the air. He does this. <laughs> in other words, you're wearing a Dodger helmet. I'm not selling you a hot dog. And then he grins and I grin because we both know what happens next. He wants the five bucks. So he hands the hot dog down the row and I hand the $5 down the row. And, and it just makes the point that when there's a cost of discriminating, you're less likely to discriminate. So it seems like that this insight might have huge implications for people who want to use the political process to limit the market process in order to have a less discriminatory outcome. So, yeah, it does. It means that they there's a good chance they're not going to get what they want if what they really want is non-discrimination. Sometimes they might want different discrimination, for example. But if mm -hmm. they want people not to discriminate on, on racial grounds, yeah, they, they, they might be very disappointed. And, uh, and unfortunately, some of the people they want it for are going to be even more disappointed because a lot of the people who push for these things, they're set, they got theirs. So it's not as if they even bear the cost directly of mm -hmm. this bad policy. 
One of the other topics that the book covers that I think is going to be counterintuitive to a lot of people is the insight that when a firm has a very large market share, that does not necessarily mean that they're behaving in a non-competitive type of manner. Um, can you speak about that a little bit? Because my, you know, my students and, and a lot of people kind of think if a firm is really big, they're a monopoly and they're up to nefarious uh, things. Yeah, and I think it's a very natural for that. I, I got in economics so early, about age 17, I started reading it. So I don't remember what I thought before then, but I probably thought that before then. Oh, I absolutely did. <laughs> yeah. And, and so Dem Sets said the original insight that led to one of his major articles in this area was he noticed that in the auto industry at the time, this was in the 60s, wouldn't be true now, but in the 60s, only General Motors was making money and they were the biggest. And he goes, wait a minute, they're the biggest and they're making money and the others are not making money or not making as much money. Hmm. And so the thought he then had was maybe they're doing it because they're successful. They've got economies of scale. They figured out other good things that work well for them. And so their market share is a reward for doing all these efficient things. And so you might, if you looked at overall profit rates in that industry, say, oh, it's concentrated of small number of firms producing a large part of the output and it's got high profit rates but then if you look within the industry you see well they're not all making the same high profit rate it's general motors and the others are are not doing as well and and so that was kind of the the key insight he had about that and and you know we see i mean amazon is anyone going to argue that amazon is charging really high prices you know and and yet they they have this huge market share um lester tells well this is university of chicago so i won't i won't go there uh, yeah so that implies that a lot of the antitrust legislation or the efforts to keep the market size or the market share of firms to a smaller you know, percentage, that that could actually do more harm than good. Yeah. Uh, so let's say, well, in fact, if you look at Lena Khan, who's head of the Federal Trade Commission, a lot of the things she's trying to do are examples of this, and they'll do more harm than good. So she wants to rein in some of the biggest, most successful firms. Well, if she does that and succeeds, they cut back an output. I mean, what's the easiest way to reduce your market share? Raise your price. And then if they raise their price, that acts as kind of an umbrella for other smaller firms to raise their prices. And so, yeah, you could get very non-competitive results, closer to monopoly results, uh, because of this restriction on the share of the large firms. If we add to that the insight that the UCLA school offers about regulation and the incentives of regulators um, and the unintended consequences of regulation, um, it might be the case that that's a highly politicized process. So one of the examples you give is the AT&T merger with Time Warner. Um, but I remember about 10 years ago, AT&T and T-Mobile were discussing merging. 
And it was Sprint that kind of stepped up and kind of petitioned the um, the DOJ to kind of step in and file and prevent this merger from happening. Yeah. And very ironically, which two firms are merged today, T-Mobile and Sprint. Um, so so it's, it seems like that process has a lot of other kind of per perverse incentives going on. So yeah. the UCLA school talks about the economics of regulation and the Nirvana approach to kind of analyzing the political process. So how can we um, apply that type of insight to these, these types of questions? Well, I kind of think you just did. In the sense <laughs> but that... other questions as well. Okay. Okay. Well, let, maybe I should say a few things about the Nirvana approach. Yeah. That was a big Demsets contribution. People now refer to it as the Nirvana fallacy, but if you read it carefully, and we were careful in, in researching and writing this, it's the Nirvana approach. So Demsets wrote this piece in, I think, 66, called Information and Efficiency, Another Viewpoint. And he said, a lot of economists don't compare the reality of a free market with all its warts with the reality of a market in which you have intervention. Instead, they compare the reality of a free market with this hypothetical system with certain regulations in which everything works well and government knows everything and so on. And so he called it the Nirvana approach. And he said, you should compare like and like. You should compare real world free market institutions with real world situations where government is intervening. And he said, as part of the Nirvana approach, there are three fallacies. The grass is always greener fallacy, the free lunch fallacy, and the people could be different fallacy. The grass is always greener fallacy. Well, we just look at, hey, it could be better, so it will be better. Mm -hmm. uh, the people could be different fallacy. Well, if people were only a di if different way, this would work well. And so let's just assume they're going to be different when we regulate. And the free lunch fallacy often applies to information, which is somehow we're going to have all the information we need to regulate, whereas we didn't, where there's no good reason to think we would. And so he goes through, and there was this other famous economist who won the Nobel Prize some years later, Kenneth Arrow. And he goes through Arrow's article and lays out how each, various parts of his argument for government putting money in, in investing in research and development, various parts of his argument do one or more of those fallacies. And in total, they do all three, they commit all three fallacies. And that was just this incredible, I mean, when he writes it in 66 and it's what, uh, 56 years later, and people are still talking about the Nirvana fallacy, um, that means that he, he accomplished something. And as somebody who is really interested in public choice, I've heard the Nirvana fallacy before, but I had never made the connection back to to Demsets and, oh, yeah. and this Nirvana approach, which is yeah. is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Now, perfect information is something that you you'd brought up, right? There's this informational burden that regulators or, or government and government intervention. Um, fails to meet. Now, yeah. actors in the market don't really have perfect information either. What's maybe the difference between why that works out 
why it plays out differently in, in that market versus a non-market setting? Well, in the market setting, people at least have an incentive to get information. And so they'll try to get kind of the optimal amount of information. And, and so that's different right there. In the government situation, the problem is when government takes over or you know, does intrudes fairly heavily, it has to have information that it probably can't have. And therefore, it's just, it's gonna go bad. We just don't know in what particular way it's gonna go bad. Um, so, I mean, that's a, that's a big one right there. And so hopefully in part two of our conversation, we can touch on some of the many specific examples of the unintended consequences that we get from, from regulation, um, right. because that is definitely something that I associate with this group of thinkers, especially, you know, Sam Peltzman, his ideas really focus on these unintended consequences. Right. Um, so I, are there any thoughts? We're almost out of time. Are there any ideas that you want to kind of leave us with? Any kind of main points that you think really define this UCLA school of thought? I think two. One of them, you just mentioned Peltzman. And so he did two major studies. And maybe we should hold off. It's up to you. <laughs> talking about his study of the Food and Drug Administration and also his study of car safe, vehicle safety regulations. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you want to talk about that or wait we're on that. We're almost out of time. So okay. I think we should and probably I'll, save I'll that leave, deeper discussion for part two. I'll leave that. The other one I want to mention, we didn't talk at all about Jack Hirschleifer. Okay. And Jack Hirschleifer did this really important study of disaster and recovery. And the motivation was, this was in the late 50s, early 60s, when people are saying, gee, if we had nuclear war, you know, what would it look like afterwards? And Hirschleifer wasn't saying, oh, that's no problem. It was rather what he did was he looked at some pretty bad situations just after major bombing, say, in Germany in World War II, and saw how quickly people adjusted and and managed to get the economy moving again and that was just this really interesting very carefully done empirical piece that he did and that's a really timely topic as well because people have become increasingly concerned about you know the m frequency of natural disasters i'm sure you living in california yeah. um, concern about wildfires all types of natural disasters um how does Hirschleifer's work kind of challenge that dominant view? Well, he basically um, just, it's very empirical. It's, it's not as if he started out saying, oh, things are going to work out. It was like, how do things work out? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, in a way, it should make sense because people aren't just going to sit there like lumps, right? Mm -hmm. When things happen, people are going to adjust down and I think it was in Louisiana you had the Cajun Navy you had these people just getting together and helping out other people we saw that a lot with our 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake in California where people were without power for days but they were helping each other in various ways and so on so I mean it's an empirical issue mm -hmm. but it's really quite striking and it makes sense that people aren't just going to wait and sit there like lumps and not only do they not wait 
um, we don't devolve into you know savages that are beating each other up and and taking the property that other people have just to get by. Yeah, and I want to give one example, which was yeah. very moving during the Loma Prieta earthquake. There was this freeway in Oakland that collapsed, and it was near this you know a low income, largely black neighborhood where there was lots of crime. So already, if you have a kind of a stereotype of, oh man, those people are going to come out and rob the people in cars. The exact opposite happened. They came out and they put their lives at risk to save people out of their cars. It was just one of the most moving things um, that happened. It was just, it was just wonderful. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I hope we get to talk more about that because I know that um, a lot of people whose ideas that we are both familiar with, they've done a ton of work on disaster recovery from Hurricane Katrina. And um, so I hope we do get a chance to talk about that um, and maybe yeah. set some listeners' minds at ease um, with regard to what, what happens post-disaster. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us today, David. I really look forward to speaking with you again about how these ideas can help us think through modern policy conversations. But I learned so much from you today. Thank you, Rosemary. You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and head over to essentialscholars.org to learn more. See you next time.